Hi, everyone. Hope you've been having a wonderfully creative week. I'm Rod Jones, and we celebrate what people love to do creatively by giving them a voice so you can learn and be motivated from their life's experiences. And I'm Angie Jones. Welcome to Thought Road Podcast. We invite you to subscribe on Amazon Music or wherever you listen, and we focus on sharing with everyone how they can think, be, and live more creatively. Okay, Angie, how about telling all of us who Mm -hmm. our guest is going to be today? I would love to. Today we're going to be speaking with Nathan Felix, and he's a composer known for his immersive operas and experimental films. You know, I suspect this is going to be another one of those interviews Mm -hmm. where we all learn from his creative journey. Um, He's pretty inspiring just in the conversations we originally had from him. This is going to be really good. I think so. I think he's being fabulous. Ah. So let's start with uh, the quote for this episode. Okay. Well, here's a quote um, from one of my favorite people, actually. And here's a quote. Fashion is not something that exists in dresses only. Fashion is in the sky, in the street. Fashion has to do with ideas, the way we live, and what is happening. And this quote is by Coco Chanel. You know, somehow I kind of figured you were going to do a quote from Coco Chanel um, because she's going to be mentioned in this interview with Nathan. She is. And, you know, I love her quotes. They're always so inspirational and and so witty, actually. And she's um, had such a major influence in the fashion industry for decades now and and, an inspiration to all women all over the world. Uh, I think she has a really, really cool name. She does have a cool name, too. <laughs> great name. That doesn't hurt, I guess. No, that doesn't hurt. <laughs> great logo, great name. Absolutely. Um, so let's get into our interview with Nathan. Okay, sounds good. Nathan, welcome to the Thought Road Podcast. Uh, you know, you were introduced to us by Madison Marie McIntosh, who we've had, actually, I think we've had her on the show a couple of times mm-hmm. over the last year, and uh, and she's an opera singer. Yes. Hi, Nathan. And yes, Madison did um, introduce us to you. And um, so today we're going to be discussing your career as an opera composer. Well, I'm happy to be on the show. I really appreciate it, so thank you. Oh, you're welcome. Well, why don't we start, Nathan, uh, with you telling us where you're originally from and where you grew up. So I grew up in Austin, and I start with that because those were my formative years. Mm -hmm. And it was very influential on me becoming a musician. But Mm. my grandfather... We're both from Mexico, and then I have a grandmother um, from the UK, and they met um, in World War II, uh, so she was a war bride, and so they relocated to uh, Laredo, uh, which is in South Texas. Sure. So I've, I've spent a lot of time in Laredo when I was younger, and you know, back and forth um, on both sides of the border. Well, that's fun. You get to have a little different international feel, which is really neat for you as a kid. It was very eye-opening, to say the least. Uh, You know, and I haven't, someone asked me the other day if I've been back to Laredo, but since my grandmother passed over a decade ago, I really, all my family has moved out and I haven't haven't been been back. Uh, So it's something that I've been thinking about. Well, maybe someday you'll you'll go back there, and then and I'm sure it'll be vastly different. Reminisce, yeah, and right? reminisce a, a reminisce. little. Yeah. Just out of curiosity, do you have a, a favorite childhood memory from that time? Ooh, from that time, I don't know if a lot of my childhood memories down by the border were were memorable. But mm-hmm. I mean, I think walking across, you know, we walk across the bridge to Nuevo Laredo in Mexico, mm-hmm. and you know, that was just eye-opening walking bridge. It 
walking the bridge and seeing the, the, the cultural change right away was, was kind of eye-opening to me. Oh, yeah. Oh, I, I bet, bet it was. I bet it was. Now, did you have a favorite place that you would go to across the border, like for food or for entertainment, anything like that? I mean, I was really young, and so where whatever my aunts or my mom they wanted to do, probably mm-hmm. shopping or, you know, they, they did go over there to get a lot of, a lot of food and stuff and bring back. Well, let's nice. move up to a childhood memory that came after that. Yeah, like when you're grown up. Well, when you're in your when you're so teens. Mu- somewhat grown up, yeah. Twelve teens, whatever. Teens. Uh, yeah, you know, in Austin, which is where I spent my teenage years, I have a very vivid memory of the first time I heard an amplified guitar at a concert. It was my first concert, and my brother took me, and that immediately sent me into this mission to figure out how to make sounds uh, like that coming from a guitar and an amp and it got me into music so that's a very vivid sort of moment and turning point in my in my life okay well that's really interesting because i i could see that because it's a very loud but also like you can manufacture this sound of something that you did so especially then you could could really feel it yeah you can so feel it at a concert yeah Oh, it did. It, it sent shockwaves, you know, down my spine and it reverted in the whole amphitheater. And I thought, wow, that's amazing that you can make that. That's so really neat. into the sound. So. <laughs> well, that's a, a great starting point. Yeah, is that's it a not? good starting point. So, okay, um, Nathan, let's fast forward to today. So tell us about what you're doing currently. Currently, yes, I am in my fall season, or I'm beginning my fall season. Mm-hmm. My first concert is next week, and then uh, I will be in the midst of producing three operas that I wrote and in various cities. So up next, which I'm pretty passionate about, it's a passionate pro- a passion project. Excuse me, it's an opera, full length opera, about seventy minutes. Uh, about the life of Coco Chanel. Oh, that's so cool. Be, yeah, it'll be in Orlando, and I spent a lot of time doing concerts in in Orlando and Florida, and I'm really excited to see my friends, my collaborators, and kind of delve into this uh, this new opera. Is Orlando a real... I've heard this before, and it seems like this, uh, there's a lot of people that like opera that are there. It sounds to me like you attract a pretty good audience when you perform there. Is that true? So that's part of the reason why I go to Orlando is because they have a really, really strong um, taking to performing arts. So a lot of it's musical theater. So I would say a lot of people are going to concerts that are, you know, sort of Broadway type shows, but that does carry over into opera. And a lot of that is due to Disney. There's so much talent in Orlando because of Disney. Oh, I see. And when I realized that, I thought, okay, well, I can self-produce my, you know, sort of DIY operas and have a plethora of, of talent to choose from. So it's it's really exciting for me to work with pretty high-level talent. Yeah, and we're going to ask you questions about that in a little bit. But I'm curious... I'm sure most people, I know both Angie and I certainly are because we talked about it. How do you sit down and write an opera? It's it's almost like creating a movie. You have characters, you have dialogue, mm-hmm. you have music. It's a, it's kind of a complicated thing. How how do you how do you sit down and do that? Where does that come from? Well, I started off playing in bands then i transitioned to like chamber music and classical music and choral music but there was something missing or at least i shouldn't say missing but there was something that i wanted to explore and that was more of a literal narrative in my music yeah and opera sing seemed like the the next step because i had a lot of ideas for stories and since i'm a musician i thought okay well i can just take the stories that I'm interested in and develop in, develop them into a format that has a narrative and that can carry over and translate a message to, to an audience. I didn't go to school for any type of music, so I really, really just self-taught myself um, 
the process. So I just kind of picked a process that worked for me. And I've been told that my approach to opera is slightly different than the way it would normally be done. Mm -hmm. I tend to write the music first and then I put the story on top or, or the, you know, the, the libretto, the, mm -hmm. the words, but I write the music knowing story is going to be. So if I'm writing the first act and I know there's going to be a tragic scene, then I know the music is going to end itself towards sadness and tragedy. So there, there is a, a, a method to, to my approach, but I just feel more comfortable writing music first because that's what I've done all my life. Mm -hmm. So did you, you were self-taught then to compose music, opera? Uh, yeah. Yeah. Self-taught in any, in every sense of sense of the word, because growing up in Austin, everyone plays guitar, right? So you pick up a guitar when you're a teenager and right. all my substitute teachers and teachers play guitar. So you just play, you know, you learn to improvise, you learn to just listen to records. And I, I learned guitar on my own and, and I've sort of carried that mentality of, oh, I can learn anything that I want to. And so I taught myself how to read and write music just by going to the library and, you know, opera falls into that, right? Mm -hmm, a lot of mm -hmm. the backing is orchestral instrumentation. So you may, you, you're actually quite lucky that you pursued it that way mm -hmm. because a lot of people, we, we talk to creative people, both engineer artists and we do some writing and we notice that the people that we've talked to that were formally educated, they always say that they never really developed their own inner self creativity. And probably one of the reasons why your work is so unique and so interesting is because it really came out of you. Nobody was sitting there telling you where to put the notes. Right, exactly. You you decided that on yourself based on your life experiences. I, I think that's something to be very proud of. It's something that I learned when I got into my early 30s and met other composers or, or musicians that went to school for music, and they either were burnt out or they were trying to break this academic mindset that was instilled in them in in their studies and i started to realize oh wow i'm, I'm kind of glad maybe i didn't go to music school because i didn't have a lot of those uh obstacles to overcome i, I just i've always just kind of written what what i like and what comes naturally to me so now i kind of wear it as a badge of honor that, that i'm this troubadour like diy self-taught kind of composer so I, I like it now I lean into it very good I, that's, that's I'm so curious. wonderful that you you just draw upon yourself organically and not and was not in a quote classroom situation where somebody says you need to do it this way and that way yeah. like what creative freedom that you have so that's wonderful so you you play, we know you play the guitar yes. uh, <laughs> but so in chamber music what instrument what instruments do you actually play so I don't really play an instrument. I can noodle on guitar still, obviously, uh, and piano, mm -hmm. you know, drums and bass, which don't really come into play for writing music per se, or at least not opera. Mm -hmm. But I, I understand the instruments and how they work just from writing and working with so many different artists that I don't really need to play anything in order to compose or, or convey mm. musically what I want to. That's very interesting. Well, why don't we, because um, this is something we got really excited about because it's such a unique way to perform, and you refer to it as immersive opera. And how, why don't you explain that to us, and then we're going to get into how it impacts uh, your performances. But I guess, is that something that you creatively came up with? So immersive opera, to begin with, it's it's breaking down the, the the gap between the stage and the audience, and it's having the performers and the stage be amongst the, the audience uh, in in the space. So audience members have agency to to move as they wish, and the singers and sometimes the instrument instrumentalists are also moving from gallery to gallery. We'll say because I do a lot of things in museums. Now, did I come up with the idea? I I don't know. 
if, if I wouldn't take credit for that, I mean, I didn't really look at anything in particular and say, oh, I want to do exactly what some other artist is doing. But it, get, it gets compared a lot to uh, flash mobs, which my work is not a flash mob. It's not meant to be kitschy mm-hmm. or it's, it's, it's curated. But that concept is sort of a, an immersive way to present music, the flash mob. And there's a lot of theater that I think has been immersive for, for decades and me being a musician again, I, I thought, okay, I love immersive theater, mm-hmm. so why don't I just incorporate that into my my skill set and my um, my productions? Hmm. What have you noticed from the um, the audience? If if you're if you're doing this performance in a gallery, I can picture your singers moving around the room, and I can picture your musicians moving around the room not quite sure if you ever use kettle drums. I'm not sure how they would move around the room. Um, but how, what is the, how do the audience, how do they react? Do they walk up to the singer and listen to them, or do they ever make comments, or do they join in? What is the feedback that, that happens in that room? It's got to be very interesting. It is interesting, and it can be random at times. You know, there's no introduction to uh, the, the beginning of, of my productions right so I, they, they do just pop up and people usually know they're coming to a performance of mine that's going to be musical and, and have some sort of angle that's unique and you get you get all sorts of different reactions for the most part people seem to to really love and, and engage with it i mean a lot of times they look confused at first and mm-hmm. they're very they're very unsure whether how to engage but as the performance goes on and they, they see some bolder audience members follow the singers, then, you know, everyone sort of follows uh, sort of in tandem. That's and really interesting. They, it, it just, yeah, it takes a little time for the discovery part of it mm-hmm. and to have the boldness to engage. Sometimes people do walk right up to them, but for the most part, I have my singers rehearse and know that, hey, if the audience is in front of you and they're on our footprint of where we want to stage something, you're just going to walk. You are going to be in charge of the stage. And, you know, I, I'm, I'm very keen on my, telling my performers that we dictate the performance and mm-hmm. not the audience. So, Nathan, this is very unconventional for operas. How did you develop this kind of performance style? Well, I write music that I want to hear, and I produce things that I want to produce. So Mm -hmm. I enjoy things that challenge me visually and orally, and I I produce them in this way, this immersive way, because that's something that I would want to see. Mm. Okay. And... I think that's always been important for me to just do whatever my heart is most interested. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And yeah, that's the reason I do them is because that's what I would want to see. I, I'm not interested personally in sitting for an hour, an hour and a half looking at a stage. That's just not what I, what I enjoy. I like to move around and, and again, explore the different senses that, that a production can bring. In a traditional for- performance, uh, whether it be opera or an orchestra, there's always the conductor who everybody applauds when he walks out on stage, and they're all excited to hear what he's going to do. The uh, first chair, first violin, they all go shake each other's hand and all that. What happen- How do you direct? People are moving all over the place. Um, I'm very sure you're not jumping out in front of everybody and waving a baton. How do how do you oh, orchestrate yeah. how do you, or direct it? How do you direct it? Yeah. Well, I I do have a conductor, so I don't conduct, and it's it's really I look at it like an onion, and I'm just like revealing, I'm peeling off these layers that I'm presenting to the audience. So at first, the idea is to not give away where we're going to start, and of course, I have a conductor that's been directed to begin at a certain point so he'll just hide his baton or we'll, we'll hide his sheet music and he'll just come in and he'll look at the, the where they are spread out you know we'll have like little cues um that only that only we know you know numbers or hand signs or we'll you know scratch the side of our the right side of our head so that that they know that okay now we're, we're beginning 
And once the con- conductor is revealed, there's nothing you can do about it because everyone knows, okay, the conductor's the leader. And so when he moves throughout the, the gallery spaces, the audience will tend to follow. They'll know, okay, the conductor is moving, so we know that things are going to kind of head in that direction. But there are a lot of challenges because people can get in the way of where, how we rehearsed. And that's sort of the variable that makes it really fun and exciting and sort of improv. Like we don't improv the music, but we do improv um, our, our movements. You almost would have to. I mean, what if there's a tour group going through there or they're all standing in front of a, <laughs> yeah. a painting and they're giving this big description and then all of a sudden a singer walks right in the middle of them? Uh, that's got to be very interesting. <laughs> I mean, does anybody yell out, don't pay attention to that man behind the curtain? <laughs> no one really yells out or speaks once we start, but definitely if they are, if there's a group of people in a particular location or by a painting that we want to be by, I tell my singers, if you're if you're belting out some pretty high notes and you're walking towards someone, they usually move. get out of the way. <laughs> it's a good way to move. <laughs> I love it. Um, is there an opera collective that you are associated with, or are you just drawing from people that you organically know, you know, from meeting? A little bit of both. I in New York City, I I, I have an apartment there and I started an opera collective there, and it has about fifty to sixty singers and instruments. And so when I do things in in New York, I pull from that that uh, pool of musicians but it carries over a little bit when i do concerts outside of you know, mm-hmm. uh, because each uh, member of the of the collective i asked in a survey when i first when i first uh, you know get to know their their mm-hmm. style and stuff like that and i said what's your hometown and i always want to know where people's hometowns are because a lot of times if i'm doing a concert like it's in albuquerque or orlando they'll they will have grown up in those cities. And so right. I'll say, Hey, well, I, you're already vetted for my, um, you know, collective in New York and I enjoy working with you. Let me give you an opportunity to see if you want to travel back to see your family or your friends and also perform. So I, I use it as a tool to, to work with singers in their hometowns. That's very cool. You did a performance in, um, Albuquerque, Albuquerque. not too long ago. I did. I did. I did a, an immersive opera about La Malincha, who was Cortes's translator. Um, and I did it this summer. It was great. It was an immersive, immersive opera. We did two concerts at the museum there in Albuquerque with the Malinche, uh exhibition as a backdrop. And, you know, Madison, she went from New York City to, to Albuquerque to perform in it. Now, she didn't have family in Albuquerque, but again, I... I offer it to anyone to, hey, if you really want to do this with me in, in, mm-hmm. in these other cities, I, I'm, I'm always open to it because I like work with singers that I'm familiar with. And, and I really like to create an environment with my ensembles that is uh, comfortable and inclusive. So, I think what was really interesting because we saw uh, social media clips of that was the costuming. Oh, yeah. That was really interesting. Who who yeah. who pulls that together? Yeah, where do you get your costumes from? <laughs> well, it's it's all uh, a DIY effort, so I tend to not have budgets for costuming, and I lucked out because I've done some work with uh, Regina Opera Company, which is up in Brooklyn, mm-hmm. and and I actually volunteer for the, to do their social media just because I really believe in what they're doing and, and I like to contribute mm-hmm. in, in areas for organizations that I support. And through that uh, rapport, they saw that I was doing the Malinche concert in Albuquerque and they opened up their their wardrobe to me and they, you know, they offered uh, to, to lend and donate some uh, costuming. So that the costume, the Conquistador costume that Madison wore, was from Regina Opera's closet, which was donated from the Met, like back in the seventies. No Regina Opera been around for like sixty wow, that's years. That's so, so cool. So, that, was, that was nice. So Beverly Sills could have worn that costume. <laughs> <laughs> you giggle, yeah. <laughs> um, was there any other direction of music that you thought 
you would have liked to have pursued instead of going into opera? Well, I I don't think it's too late to pursue any type of music right now for me. I, I've kind of changed the course of what I produce and what I write mm-hmm. uh, throughout my life. You know, I started in punk bands, and originally I thought I was going to be a you know a rock and roll star and tour the world and do that thing. So I mean, I pivoted though into classical music because it just captivated my mind a little more and or actually a lot more and it went from classical to film scores to choral to uh, now now opera so i don't think that there's a genre that i can't delve into although i will say and i don't have any interest in jazz but i mean jazz is like something i don't think i would i mean you got to be trained i think to be a jazz performer mm-hmm. or composer so but I don't have interest, so I won't. I won't upset any jazz people. By, by <laughs> you won't go there. <laughs> yeah. No, we like jazz, and we've had some jazz well, really performers all music. on. Yeah, yeah, we have. And they were they were really quite talented, very interesting. You know, we um, also discovered a jazz opera. Yeah, and then we were you were talking about um, filmmaking, and I know that you do experimental filmmaking as well. And how does that? merge in with your opera compositions and performances you know they don't really um come together and and that's intentional okay i picked up the camera during the pandemic that was sort of my passion project when i was staying in my home all alone i I had this camera i thought well i bought it for a reason let me see if i can get some use out of it so I started filming myself in the pandemic, just doing mundane tasks that I was doing every day, whether it be drinking coffee, I would just put a camera on myself, drink coffee, a shaving, you know, things like that. And the Austin Chronicle did an article because they, they saw my posts. You know, I just put them on social media just for fun, you know, as we were all doing it in the pandemic. And they reached out to me and said, this is like the weirdest TikTok stuff we've ever seen. And <laughs> So they did an article on me, and it it really helped because that article of me filming these random uh, quarantine tasks, uh, I got I got hired to do an exhibition in another part of Texas, College Station, which is east mm-hmm. of Austin. Oh, we, we know College Station. Yeah, we have some friends there. Well, that's so really interesting that you got an yeah. exhibition. And was this at a museum, or where was this at? Yeah, it was at a, it was at the Texas A and M Forsyth Gallery, so it's on campus. Oh yeah, I don't. So um, it was really nice, and and you know my films, I people ask me they say, oh, well, you, are you going to do the soundtrack to your films? And I actually intentionally don't put music in them because I don't want to um, people to only think of me as as a musician. I, I want to do some things that can also set myself apart and say, no, this this is purely film. My love of film. And sometimes music, I think, can take away from the visuals. Mm-hmm. And I'm, I'm trying to convey something that I want people to watch and not get lost in. in right, sound. and not influence them, right? Because when you watch a movie, they always put a, you know, a music over it, and it influences your mood in a certain way. Right, correct. That's exactly why, why I don't do it. And it's, it's really fun for me to challenge myself and say, okay, well, I really need to focus on how I can make this a film that is engaging mm-hmm. without relying on on music that's so cool you know you touched on this briefly but i'm always fascinated we're always fascinated about talent and you have to use talent when you well apparently you're using yourself as talent when you shoot your videos but when you're searching for talent or trying to find people uh musicians or opera singers or singers in general uh, what is your process i mean how do you find these people so now with with uh, things opening up for me in sort of a, a touring way, you know, I'm, I'm doing performances in Texas and like next year I'm doing things in Iowa City and Savannah, Georgia. Those are two markets that I've never tapped into. Mm-hmm. So and I don't really necessarily know people in those areas. So I uh, was introduced to, uh, I don't know if it's an app, but a website called Yap Tracker, which is young artist performers. Young artists, professionals, mm-hmm. and it's specifically for for opera singers. And I think they have to pay uh, a subscription fee, a small fee, but it helps vet like amateurs from you know semi pro 
type of uh, singers. And I post things on Yacht Tracker, and it's been it's been very fruitful. I get I get uh, video auditions, and I'll sort of sift through them and and reach out and interview each singer and see who's right for the part. And that's been a a huge blessing to to be able to use this tool of Yacht Tracker because otherwise I would you know how do you find people in a city where, that you don't know in a city that you can't necessarily go to and right. i can't afford to set up auditions at a hotel or anything so it's it's been great oh that sounds perfect and it sounds super and efficient. i bet they're excited yeah. when you select them oh yeah i mean the thing is that there are so many singers that are talented that are coming out of universities by the dozens every year so there's only so many roles within like opera companies you know, big, medium, small companies. There's only so many roles, and is an opportunity for them to to stay stay working. Mm, that's nice, and it gives up something for their uh, portfolio of performances mm-hmm. they've done. It gives they also can share that uh, trying to land other work. So it's symbiotic. That's kind of a nice thing. Yeah, and I've made a lot of good uh, connections, good friendships through it. So I, I like it. Well, you know, I, I was thinking back to our conversation earlier, Nathan, about your opera about Coco, Coco Chanel, which I think is entitled Number Five, right? So tell us Correct. a little bit about that and the process, because, you know, I, I, of course, love fashion and everything fashion. So tell us how you, you know, did this. This is so cool. We've had relatives that were... Well, everybody wore Chanel, Chanel 5. five. Yeah, yeah, that was in. <laughs> well, I also have a love for fashion. I think if there was a career path that I took, other than music, if I could go back to when I was a teenager, I would have probably learned how to sew, and I would have loved to be a fashion designer. So I've always just had a love for fashion and style. Mm-hmm. And in particular, combined with my love of art and film, the 1920s, you know, that era in Paris was uh, pretty in- influential for me. Just there's so many characters in that time period that that I love, you know, the Gertrude Stein. Yeah, we're just oh, going to yes, say yes. we were just going to say Gertrude Stein. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And Hemingway running around being Hemingway. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Picasso, yeah. and Picasso, Picasso running around being Picasso. Crowd. Yeah, and his and all crowd. the Dada stuff, all the Dadaism, and all yeah. that. And Luis Bunuel, filmmaker, he's been a huge influence on me. I love oh, Luis Bunuel. I can Bunuel. imagine. So just that love of that era. And, you know, Coco Chanel crossed paths with all of those artists. And I thought, okay, well, what's a way that I can get this passion project off the ground? And and I, I met a singer that I've worked with. Her name's Molly Anderson. She she sang with me for, for a couple performances. And she has an amazing voice. And I said, Molly what do you think about you know being coco chanel for an opera this is about a year ago mm-hmm. and she she loved it she loved the idea her a lot of her family really big into the history of chanel so it just seemed to fit like a glove and and i i was a little challenged trying to write the libretto for this one because you know when i tell people i'm doing a coco chanel opera they say oh you know i've seen the movies and you know, a lot there's a lot of stuff that's that you can highlight about a very famous, influential person. Yeah. So I wanted to take a little different approach, and it was a bit challenging at first, but I, I kind of honed in on, uh, because it's number five, I chose five loves of Chanel's life that uh, that she experienced. And you know, one of the things about Chanel is I knew that her last words were like, is this all life you know, amounts to? Because yeah. she was alone one of the richest, not only females, it's people in the world at the time. And, and so I thought that was interesting that, that you can have all the money in the world, but you can still die alone. And, and who knows how she really felt. Uh, but I, I think that we're all human and we, we want to have a partner and we want to have some love in our life. And so I took that approach and I had five loves of her life that, um, that she experienced. And through that, I found a lot of drama because you know, she had a relationship with you know, a, a Nazi a general, you know, during World yeah, War II. And so that's, did. that's salacious, you know, so it's, you know, there's a lot of, there's a lot of drama that's come out of it and it's fun. 
it's 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 a really fun piece i think i think she also a lot of people use her quotes some of her quotes oh, yeah, are quite brilliant especially uh how she suggests how women think of themselves in a positive healthy way yeah. her, her quotes are pretty amazing I agree. I actually used some of her quotes in the libretto, so that was fun because she just had there was just a wealth of of amazing quotes and amazing speeches that I came across. So I I sort of analyzed them and and, and chose some of the uh, some of that for the material. What a fresh idea, though the five loves. I just I love that whole concept, and I'm sure that it's just very emotional opera in a more contemporary light I think that maybe people can sort of relate to at that point so it's kind of a cool thing. Well even if they saw the movies and read the book right. uh, this is really a, a unique and interesting approach. Love it. Yeah. Love it. Maybe it'll be turned into a movie. It could. <laughs> <laughs> well I think it would be fun if if it had a um, more opportunities to be performed in other cities. I mean, I think with the, with such a, a visible brand name of Chanel, you know, I think it would be really fun to do it in New York City or, or you know, in, in France somewhere. So oh, we'll France. Oh, very France. much so, yeah, yes. Definitely. Yes. Um, I'm going to get back to your Mercy of Opera a little bit, and I'm curious – I have to assume that not every venue you're in worked perfectly well. Um, did your did you have some performances that were kind of difficult to make happen just because of the environment or the cooperation uh, from the museums? How did that go? Difficult. Hmm. That's a good question. I don't really associate any of my performances as having been difficult in terms of figuring out the sound and the space. Uh, there's uh, more than difficult parts with doing these production is the, the personnel and keeping everyone together in, in a cohesive way. But that's the fun of creating, right? Seeing it evolve in terms of the spaces. And that's the fun part for me. The fun part for me, go in a space, walk around, mm-hmm. you know, figure out where, where the sweet spots are, musically orally visually and i don't want each museum or space to be the same you know it's it's not as fun for me if it's just a big box right so with that being said there was a gallery that that i would say was it difficult but the most challenging Mm -hmm. and and it was in new york city it was called the highline nine or it is called the highline nine and it's a gallery that has a very narrow um, like walkway or corridor. And it goes from one street, like you can enter on one street, uh, it exits on the other street. And, you know, a street in New York is pretty, mm-hmm. pretty wide. Right. And within this corridor to each side are larger gallery spaces. And I thought, okay, that's, that's challenging because with this narrow corridor, you know, you cram in 125 people, there's potential for bottlenecking. And that's always what I try and do is figure out first, okay, how can I avoid bottlenecking? I've learned how people move in herds and how they interact with, uh, for the most part, with, with one of my immersive productions. Of course, there's always an outlier you know, that, that screws it all up. But for the most part, I know how people will move. So this one was a challenge because if I want to go from gallery space to gallery space, everyone's going to have to walk down that same corridor. So how do I spread things out enough to where people don't feel like they're missing things because they're trapped. And yes, I, I, that was a challenge, but it really worked out in, in a way where what I did is I split the narrative up. I split a narrative, half my ensemble, I put in one gallery on one side and then I put the other ensemble on the on the opposite side mm-hmm. and so the audience had to sort of choose which one they wanted to to watch at first so that helped kind of spread things out and then once you know we're moving amongst all the galleries at some point but that spread you know that spread out concept helped uh helped keep things uh, or preventing them from, from bottlenecking so that was a challenge. That's a, that's that's a, a huge, huge consideration, challenge. right? <laughs> yeah. Huge consideration. And you don't think about it if you're not 
like blocking all this, I think, you know, and making sure that you have some flow going on. So very cool. You know, I, we can tell you are so creative, Nathan, in so many things that you do in your life. Um, what has been your driving force and what would you tell others that want to follow their own creative dreams? Driving force. I think I'm afraid of failure. Mm-hmm. And obviously that's relative, right? I mean, what is failure? Do we really fail? I mean, um, but I, I'm just really driven to, to not succeed, but to produce things that are, that are innovative and that are challenging for me, but that an audience can can what's the right word mm-hmm. that they can be surprised by because there's so many larger institutions in the world that have you know, a century's worth of of great content that they pr- produce you know opera houses uh, symphonies uh, movie uh, production houses so you have these really big entities that that can really pump out with huge budgets things for the masses in the mainstream and i like to think of myself as someone that just fills in uh, another gap of people that are are not interested in those things like for me i'm not interested in mainstream things and i know that other people feel that same way not a smaller niche audience but those are the ones that that i want to discover my work because i discovered so many things that were avant-garde growing up and those are the ones that challenged me to to think in new ways and so i just want to sort of on to that Uh, that history of people that just sort of challenged the system. And a lot of that comes from, which here's my advice is, is really doing things because you want to do them and you don't necessarily need reason. Your reason can be just because, because you want to, it doesn't have to, you can figure out the reason later too of of the significance or the importance of it. Uh, And I think that that is important. It will prevent you from comparing yourself, right? Uh, mm. There's so many people that I come across in my life that say, oh, well, when I raise this much money, I'll do this. And I just think you can always have a reason to to need more money for something. But if you just put it out there and move forward and take steps, there's other people along that path that are going to help you and that are going to want to work with you or partner with you. And so it's, I just believe in constantly moving forward, doing things and not being afraid if it quote unquote fails because you can learn from, you can learn from any experience, but you can't really learn by holding on to an idea. What a great answer. What a, yeah. Such a good answer, Nathan. I hope um, people from La Scala or the Met are listening to this podcast. <laughs> <laughs> We'll we'll send them a be. copy. We'll send them. We'll, you'll have to convert it to Italian for a few places, but we'll convert it. <laughs> you know, the interesting thing about pursuing any form of creativity is that we're all not perfect every single day. And I can attest to that. Mm-hmm. Um, when it comes to moving forward with our, our ideas, our thoughts, uh, what do you do when the creative muse leaves the room? <laughs> well, it's, it's always in in my head, so I don't know if it ever leaves. But I, I follow what you're saying. I'm a pretty boring person, to tell you the truth. I like to run, so but I run to decompress, to recalibrate. But while I run, I'm that's also when most of my ideas come. Uh, I'm a bit of a workaholic too. And, and I like it because I, my work is, is in the creative field, and it's it's something that I'm sort of the CEO of my my career, and so it, it sort of tends to blend. I don't really uh, I don't really clock in or clock out. So I, I feel like when you meet me, I am the same person that I am in a social setting mm-hmm. that I am in a work in a work setting, and yeah. that's pretty intentional as well I, I always thought that it was not of my speed to get on a stage and become someone different now that character driven sort of art where it's like okay I'm a normal person and then now I'm this uh, you know evil character or I'm this hero or heroine 
Mm-hmm. Yeah, I love that. But for me, it wasn't. It was, that's not in the cards. Like I, I thought the authenticity of just being the same wacky, crazy artist in all relationships. See, that's really more. wonderful. That's really wonderful. It, because everyone knows when they talk to you that they're getting an authentic version of Nathan, and that's really very special. I think it's. I think your approach to life and your approach to creativity. I mean, our whole theme of our podcast is we celebrate what people love to do creatively, and you You're approach it. You're definitely doing that. Well, yeah. and you approach it from several angles, but they all seem to work together. I mean, Absolutely. one one helps the other. Um, what do you hope to accomplish in the next two years? Two years. <clears throat> That's a good question. Uh, I don't even know if it's that wild or grandiose of an idea. Two years. Um, well, we could say next 15 minutes. Yeah, in the next was. day. What do you hope to accomplish in the next day? Well, I think for the two years thing, something that has um, <clears throat> that hasn't picked up post-pandemic for me, or yet because of the pandemic, is, you know, I used to tour Europe, or I used to do concerts in Europe one or two every year for a decade. And I haven't been back to Europe since 2019. That was the last time I was there doing a concert. And a lot of the relationships or organizations that I was working with, they had a changeover in their you know leadership. So I don't really have the same, same inroads with those. So I think in the next two years, I really would like to reestablish. I feel like I'm going to have to start over, which is fine. Uh, reestablish myself in in Europe and start doing concerts there because that's the beauty of it for me is that I mean I've been able to see the world because music has taken me with the world and 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 I I miss it but at the same time you know it's so funny because when I was touring Europe every time I would tour Europe I'd say you know what I want to get back to the United States there's something I really feel comfortable in my you know in this home country and it's more important for me to to present music here mm-hmm. in some way. But I do like the little excursion to to, to branch out in, into the world because you make a lot of friends as well. Oh, yeah. sure. And the culture. I and mean, the culture. That, it's a little different than little, here, for sure. Uh, yeah, the culture. Yeah. And the arts and the creative. I mean, you've Very got history so. of all forms of art from theater to artworks. Anyway, how about your most famous question? Well, I think we're getting to the point in the program where I need to... Uh, we're going to wrap it up a little bit, but I'm going to ask you the question we ask all of our guests, and that is if you could sit on a park bench and chat with anyone from the past, who would it be? Yeah, I thought about this. <laughs> <clears throat> of course, there's a handful, but to pick one, I, I thought about it. And I, thought, I think it would be super, it would be interesting to sit on a park bench with Jesus. I just think that would be uh, it'd be a hoot, at least in my mind, the way the way I uh, would approach it. Again, like with my personality, just kind of be like, "Yo, what's up?" Like, you know, what's what's it like? You know, being able to all the things that you do and that you see and stuff like that, and you know, kind of get to some truths and stuff like that. This thing will be fun. I don't know. That was nice. And I think he would appreciate that approach from you, like really uh, as a friend, because I think he wanted to be a friend and a guide to people. You know, we've had people, in fact, even the last episode that we just published, they had a very similar answer. Mm-hmm. Um, but yours was kind of more down to earth. Yeah. When you use terms cool. like it would be a hoot because we can all kind of relate to that. Mm-hmm. You know, you're just basically having a conversation with a, a friend, but you also know this person knows a lot heck of a lot more than you do Mm -hmm. and it'd be really interesting to hear how they might uh, convey their thoughts and ideas and how they might influence you i think that's a great answer yeah what a great answer i mean he was a rebel so i i associate with that i I, to me i'm very rebellious in everything i do and since i was a child and i just think that uh you know he definitely was so so many things revolving around that that people like put on Mm -hmm. you know I understand, like, the religious aspect and, you know, the, I'm not trying to, like, poke fun at that. But at the same time, it's like, I just think that 
his character would be like, hey, yeah, let's hang out, let's talk, let's kick. And, and that's what I would want to do. That's a great answer. Thank well, you for sharing that. Yeah, that was a great answer. Well, you know what? We have to wrap this up. Unfortunately, you've been fascinating to talk to. Mm-hmm. Um, so uh, very candid in your thoughts and your very, ideas very. And, and giving us some real insight into your life, your creative process. So we greatly appreciate that, Nathan. Yes, and thank you for being with us today. And thank you for sharing your creative journey and life experiences. I know everyone's going to really appreciate that. And now comes the time I let everyone know. If you'd like to know more about Nathan Felix, we will have links for him under the show guest tab on thoughtrow.com. And everyone can learn more about you and connect with you on social media and check out your website. Yes, you'll enjoy learning more about Nathan. Oh, wonderful. Thank y'all. It really means a lot. It's, it's, it's been a pleasure to know y'all. Okay. All right. Okay, Thank you. That was a great conversation and a really great guest. I want to remind everyone that we are on Amazon Music. Yes, and that's where a lot of our listeners happen to be. If you have Alexa or Echo devices, it makes it really easy and a hands-free way to listen. And don't forget to subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts. So it's bye for now from my husband Rod and I, wishing everyone a great day. 